This is They Create Worlds, episode 160, The 100,000, part 1. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, the historian, Alex. Hello. (laughs) Apparently, you kids have decided to prove me wrong. I said four or five episodes until we hit 100,000. At the current rate, it looks more like one or two. Wow, that's great. So, either we're welcoming a lot of new listeners, or the machines are getting one step closer to taking over the internet. Either way, though, we will definitely take the downloads. I, for one, welcome our new machine bot overlords and would remind them that as a completely obscure podcast personality, I can be useful to help convince my fellow humans to work in their spam mines. Or at least in their historical archive mines. Something like that. For those of you that don't know what that is, I'm sure it'll now be in the show notes. It is now. (laughs) Or what it's a reference to, I should say. Yeah, some episode of some show that has no relevance to human society at all. Absolutely. We (laughs) are about to get close to 100,000 downloads, and we decided that for some reason in the era of video games, 100,000 used to mean something. Not so much now. But in the past, it did. Absolutely. So, of course, we've talked before a lot about how the computer game market was always a much smaller market than the console market, like the stuff going on with Atari and Nintendo. This is for a couple of very logical reasons. One is that computers are just more expensive. Another is that computers back then were just much more finicky to get working. You had to actually be dedicated to interfacing with your computer to do much with it. You didn't have to have a degree in computer science, but you didn't have to be intimidated by a blinking cursor just staring at you. So when you put this together, you were never going to have as big an install base with computers. And then when you throw on top of that the fact that games on cassettes and floppy disks are so much more easier to pirate than games on cartridges, and then the piracy aspect also depressed sales. Success in the computer game industry was measured a lot differently than it was in the video game industry, even in the days of Atari. You had to have at least really 500,000 to be considered doing really, really well on the VCS. And of course, the biggest games were selling 1 million, 3 million, Pac-Man 7 million. NES, it's the same kind of thing. There were still companies over the moon with 500,000 in sales, but there were lots of games selling multi-million copies. And then it just grows and grows from there. Computer games in the late 70s, early 1980s, you were over the moon if you sold 10,000. That's how small the market was. By the end of the 1980s, the market had definitely grown from that. But 100,000 was still a bellwether for massive success. Even in the late 1980s, if you sold 50,000, you were over the moon, unless you were a really large company with lots of overhead. And there weren't many of those. If you sold 100,000 copies, you were making it. I mean, that was the big time. So we thought that to celebrate our own milestone of 100,000 downloads, we would take a look at some of these 100,000, and in a few cases, more than 100,000, sellers on computer game platforms in the 1980s. 
that begs the question, how do we even know this? Because we talk all the time about how terrible sales figures are and how hard it is to get anything concrete and everything is estimates and everything contradicts itself. And we're often not very sure of what games have sold what number of units. So how do we all of a sudden have a massive list that is going to require at least a two-parter to get all the way through of games that sold 100,000 units on computer platforms? I know exactly how. How? We have managed to create a seance circle where we have (laughs) communed with the prophets of history in order to divine their wisdom from beyond the grave. Either that or we built a time machine out of a DeLorean. I like that option more. (laughs) Where's my DeLorean powered by coffee grounds? (laughs) Exactly. So it is still very true that it is incredibly hard to find any kind of good, reliable sales figures for video games, computer games, etc. for these earlier days. However, there was one source that was kind of keeping track in the 1980s, and that was the lobbying organization known as the Software Publishers Association. We've talked about the SPA tangentially when we were talking about the Senate hearings, video game violence, all of that. We're not going to go into them now because they're a lobbying group and lobbying groups aren't relevant to what we're doing, except that as the organization that represented the entire computer software industry in the United States, they did keep track of certain figures and gave out awards for reaching certain sales milestones. I don't know exactly how they got these sales figures. I presume the members reported them directly to the SBA. No guarantee that the figures that were being reported to the SBA were sell-through as opposed to sell-in. They could have been manipulating their numbers to look good. I don't know exactly what level of access the SBA had, but they had some kind of direct access. So this isn't like estimates like the NPD group does of what's going on with retailers. These are solid figures to some degree, though I wouldn't be surprised if they're manipulated. These are solid numbers, in a sense, from the actual companies themselves, from their marketing sell-through people. I sold X number of units. They returned Y number of units. I had a sell-through of Z. Maybe. Who knows if they're doing sell-in, which means what they gave to retailers, or sell-through, which means what customers actually bought from retailers. They could be doing sell-in figures to make themselves look better. Either way, they are real figures from companies, not estimates. A couple of other caveats. First of all, since this is a Software Publishers Association thing, it presumably is only including titles that were released by SPA members. That's all the big guys. You're going to see all the titans of late 1980s computer games in here, Electronic Arts and Activision and Microprose and Accolade and Broderboon, Sierra. The gang's all here. But there could be a company out there that was a one-hit wonder or was a smaller company that decided not to be part of the organization that therefore didn't report their figures and therefore didn't get a shiny award. So there could be some omissions on the list. Of course, this is an U.S. organization. We are presumably only talking about sales in the U.S. Even for those companies that did have an international presence, they are probably not giving out awards for international sales. And even if they are, all the titans of the British or the French industries, some of which were definitely selling 100,000-plus units of some of their biggest titles during this time period, will not be represented. We are going to have a U.S. bias here because we're only as good as the source that we have to work with. 
Finally, of course, this is computer games. This is stuff for computer platforms. There's going to be no console games in here. So we are just looking at stuff that was out on Apple II, Commodore 64, Atari ST, Amiga, IBM PC, insert other random computer here. No Nintendo stuff, no Sega stuff, no Atari stuff, nothing like that. No arcades. Exactly. Yeah, and definitely no coin-op, which is on a totally different scale. But we do have this fun list here, and we're going to go through it. The SPA, they gave out their awards in the same way as the music industry did. They certified things silver, gold, platinum, diamond. Though, because the industry was much smaller than the music industry in terms of sales, the thresholds were different. In the music industry, in the music world, the Recording Industry Association of America gives out a gold record for 500,000 units in sales and a platinum record for a million units in sales. Now, as we said, nothing selling a million units here. So the SPA used the same designations, but at much lower sales thresholds. So the SPA gave out a diamond award to any software that sold 500,000 units or more. They gave out a platinum award for any game that sold 250,000 units or more, or any piece of software, not just games. They gave out a gold award for 100,000 units. That's our magical gold standard here that we're commemorating because there were way more of those than there were 250 or 500. And then they would give out a silver award for 50,000. They give these out at the threshold, so we don't have exact figures for any of these games. All we know is that we have games that sold over 500,000, games that sold over 250,000, games that sold over 100,000, games that sold over 50,000. We don't have the exact number. We have a general ballpark of the numbers. Exactly. This version of the list that we have, it was reprinted in a computer almanac. It was based on the Software Publishers Association report from June 1989. This represents everything that they certified in the 1980s, except for the last part of 89. We don't quite get the entire picture of the 80s here, but we get almost the whole thing. They didn't start doing certifications until 1985, so there may be a couple of older games that are missing from the list, but A, most games didn't sell that much pre-1985 anyway, and B, even though they didn't start certifying until 85, there are games older than 1985 on this list. That's just the date that they were certified. There are earlier releases than that that are going to pop up here. So this should be a fun little exercise, something lighthearted and fun to explore for a couple of episodes and kind of just ties into this gold milestone of our own that we are just about to hit at the time of this recording. This will also give a lot more context to all of the deep dive that we've done as far as company episodes have gone on, where we looked at a lot of computer companies. We've looked at a lot of arcade companies. This gives us a more lay of the land kind of thing. What's going on? Tying sort of the big picture, eagle eye view of what's going on in the industry at this time, as opposed to this company's doing this and it's had this (laughs) interesting drama going on. And then they went kaboom. Well, how does that affect everyone else? And that's what this is for. Absolutely. This is also going to show you how thoroughly games dominated computer platforms in the early days because nobody could really figure out anything meaningfully important to do with them outside of playing games. Because this list, even though I said it was a games list, it's actually the entire software list. We're going to see a couple of entries on here that are not games. But the fact that the games are the overwhelming majority of the entries just goes to show that while there were a couple of companies that were doing okay selling software for home computer use, 
it was really all about the games. Now, the game companies were dwarfed by the big corporate titans like Borland or Microsoft or Lotus that were selling operating systems and spreadsheets and databases and business software because those programs were much more expensive. Even if Microsoft is not selling necessarily as many copies of Windows to home users by the late 1980s as some of these games are being sold, they're obviously offering the product for a lot more than the typical game. Don't let that fool you into thinking the games were the biggest companies in the software industry. They were not. And as we discussed in our episode on the formation of the ESRB and the ESA and all of those game-specific lobbying organizations, part of the reason that the game industry broke away from the software industry is they were frustrated at the lack of support they were getting from the Software Publishers Association because they were kind of at the little kids' table when compared to all of computer software. But there's no doubt that in terms of individual titles selling lots and lots of copies, games is where it was at. I think we've done enough setup for this. Let's get into the big list. We have it pulled up here. I have my copy. Alex has his copy. And we're looking at over 500,000 units sold. The Diamond Award, of which I see three. Exactly. All of them were certified in 1989, in early 1989, as hitting that milestone. So not only are there very few of them, but some of them it took an awfully long time to get there. Our first entrant on this list, which I should say each subsection is in alphabetical order, so that's how we're doing it, it's just alphabetically, is Karate Champ by Data East USA Incorporated. I believe we talked about this one. Absolutely. Karate Champ was one of the milestone coin-op titles that brought coin-op back after their disastrous market collapse, which coincided with, but was separate from, the great video game industry crash in the home. In our episode, our Picking Up the Pieces episode, where we discussed kind of how the industry jump-started again after that fallout, Karate Champ got pride of place because this was one of the massive hits in the arcades in coin-op in 1984-1985. But it fell right in the gap between the Atari VCS and the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was never as big on console. It was released on the Famicom. It was released on that system, on the NES. But by the time the NES was picking up steam in 86 and especially 87 and into 88, Karate Champ was already old news. And it came out too late to get licensed for and become a big hit on, say, the Intellivision or the ColecoVision or the Atari 5200 or something like that. This is a game that you don't think of when you think of the big console games, but on computer platforms, on the C64, which many of the Japanese companies got involved with in the late 1980s, it became huge because that was kind of the primary outlet for this game since it kind of fell through the cracks. The processor in the Commodore 64 is essentially the same processor that's in the NES. They're different variants of the 6502. They're not exactly the same, but they're close enough. In the United States, just about all the big Japanese console companies like Data East here, Taito, Konami, Capcom, they actually released a lot of their games on the Commodore 64 because they were very easy to port, and Nintendo's exclusivity deals were specifically about releasing on other consoles, so they could release these games on the Commodore 64 and not run afoul of that licensing. Here, Karate Champ, certified as over 500,000 units sold on 127.89, is our first entrant. Just to give you some context on sales growth, we can do this because they repeat in each category and they give the certification date. 
Karate Champ reached 250,000 units sold around February 24th, 1988. So in less than a year, it doubled its sales. I mean, how about that? That's pretty impressive, especially for a PC and Commodore 64, which was starting to get a little long in the tooth in 89, 88. Mm-hmm. So it was certified gold, 100,000 units, in July 1987. It more than doubled its sales from 100,000 to around 250,000 in even less time than that. I mean, this game really took off in the late 1980s as these uh, kind of action games really started to gain ground again with the success of the Famicom, of the NES, I should say, in the U.S., it was never even certified at 50,000 units, which basically says that by the time they reported to the SPA for the first time, it had already reached 100,000 units, so it must have gotten there very quickly. Because these are certification dates, not the date that they actually sold their 100,000, 250,000s. There's going to be a lag based on when they report it to the SPA. But yeah, it took off like a rocket and was, quite frankly, the biggest computer game hit of the late 1980s. You don't think of that because you think of it more as a coin-op game. But there it is, Karate Champ by Data East USA Incorporated. What's our second game on the list? Jeffrey, let's alternate announcing here. Well, obviously, this game is near and dear to everyone who plays video games (laughs) because it comes from our favorite publisher, Broderbund. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, totally not the third one on the list. It is, of course... The print shop. We have some printing to do, and we're going to do it in our shop at home. (laughs) Absolutely. So as I said, even though we're focusing on this list because the majority of the list is games, we are going to see a few pieces of productivity software mixed in amongst the game titles. Most of those will just pass right over and say, oh, look, there's a non-game, whatever. We do need to make a second for Print Shop, and not just because it came from a company that was also very successful in games, Broderbund. Print Shop, being one of only three titles certified by the SPA by the middle of 1989 as having sold 500,000 units, that says something there, that this was a massive seller. And why was that? The reason I think that is, is Print Shop was one of the few products that answered that question that I posed before. What? do you do with a computer besides playing games? We've talked before how in the early days, I mean, the very early days, the late 1970s, the early 1980s, companies tried to market their computers by saying, oh, well, little Timmy can do his homework on the computer and mom can balance the checkbook on the computer and store her recipes on the computer. Dad can do the business at the business factory on the computer. And I'm sorry for the stereotypical gender roles, but I mean, that's really how the industry saw it back then was pigeonholing people into those stereotypical gender slash household roles. It was always about that. So they were trying to come up with all of these things. But really, dad didn't do his business at home. He did go to the business factory in order to do his business. The phenomenon of taking your work home and using your computer at the home to do work after hours was really a later 1980s or an early 1990s thing. Sure, you could technically store your recipes in a computer or balance your checkbook on an early computer, but because they were so clunky and the interfaces were so clunky, it was faster to just write down your recipes on a recipe card and file it away and retrieve that. It was a lot faster to just balance your checkbook in the little ledgers in your checkbook than it was to get out the computer and do this nonsense. 
little Timmy probably wasn't really going to do his homework on the computer either. Think you have trouble printing at home now. Imagine back then with a dot matrix printer. Oh, gosh. So there really wasn't anything to do. But Print Shop was one of the first programs, came out in 1984. It was one of the first programs that said, okay, here's something else you can do. And maybe it's not something vital to living your life, but here's something you can do beyond playing games. What it provided was a program with an intuitive GUI-like interface before GUIs had taken over operating systems that allowed you to very intuitively design banners, cards, other items that you could format and print out and have fun with. And then they offered massive support for every printer under the sun. And believe me, Jeffrey, that meant something back then, as you well know. Hell, it means something right now. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, even in this era of plug and play, the least plug and play peripheral that your average person, not in some kind of specialized manufacturing plant or laboratory or whatnot, is going to be interacting with on a daily basis is their damn printer. We both have a lot of hatred for those things. (laughs) And back then it was even worse because today, at least there are only a small number of printer manufacturers that your average consumer is going to be interacting with. Back then, there were dozens of companies making dozens and dozens of models of printers, and you had to make a program like this compatible with all of them. It wasn't that you just like install the drivers for the printer on your computer and then you're good. It's like, no, the program also needs extra help. The program creators have to release their own drivers to make sure that their software interacts properly with your printer. It's a nightmare. And so what Broderboon did with this program which was created by employees, but it was brought in as an outside concept. They were hired in at Broderbund, and they had already been working on this before that. What they did with Print Shop was create something that had a relatively intuitive interface for a computer at the time, offered dedicated, hardcore support for every last printer under the sun that they could think to get a driver in for, and gave you something else fun and interesting you could do with your printer, printing these huge banners, which was just such a novelty at the time, because, I mean, you had to go to a print shop, a literal, physical print shop, in order to get something like a banner done and spend lots of money. You know, you really didn't do that unless you had a super special occasion. But now, just for regular birthdays and whatnot, you know, you could just print out a fun banner relatively cheaply. I mean, you still have to own a printer, and there's still printer ink, and there's still paper, but it's still not like going to an actual physical print shop. So this was one of the first programs that really excited consumers outside of games and provided an alternative use, and that's why we see it even at this very early date, being such a massive seller. And of course, it continues to be a massive seller for years and years and years after that. Today, I looked it up, it's still being sold. Yes, obviously not by Broderbund anymore, but the brand still has power. That's how powerful it is. Well, it says Broderbund on there, but I think someone else just like bought the Broderbund name. Well, that's exactly correct, because Broderbund is, of course, defunct as a company, which we talked about in our episode, but the, the IP lives on. My mom really enjoyed using Print Shop in the early 1990s. She would make cards with it using clip art and whatnot. That is something that had a lot of power, and so that's why we see it certified for 1989. It was a little slower of a seller, though. You can see how it's a slow build because it was certified platinum, 250,000 units, in September 1986. So it needed way more time than Karate Champ did to reach that height. But, of course, it was an evergreen product. 
after nobody cared about Karate Champ on the Commodore 64 anymore, Print Shop was still selling for decades after that. So, I mean, I'm sure that Print Shop is almost certainly the single best-selling, if you combine every release together, the single best-selling piece of software on this entire list all time. But in this time period, it still needed more time than a hot computer game to reach that high certification. So that's just another very interesting observation about the market and how a hit game could catch fire in a way that other forms of computer software just couldn't in the 1980s. Also showed the difference and the corollary between an evergreen product and something that is a game where it's just burns bright, fast, and hot, but then dies. Absolutely. An evergreen product will just eternally burn as long as you tend it. Exactly. Absolutely. Since we're continuing on with Broderbund, I need to know where in the world Carmen Sandiego falls on this list. Oh, look, it's number three. Exactly. You know, what a reminder of what a powerhouse Broderboon was at this time. Now, if you add up the sale of every Broderboon product and the sale of every product of some of the other companies, just because some of those companies have more product, they might have sold more overall. But look at this. At this point, mid-1989, three products have been certified by the SPA as selling over half a million units. Two of them are from Broderboon. And believe me, we're not done seeing Broderboon on the list in other categories either. Broderbund was one of the powerhouses in the late 1980s in the computer software scene. We talk about that in a Broderbund episode, so I won't belabor it here, but it's just a solid reminder. And we also won't belabor where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, because it's one of the few games that we literally did an episode specifically on it. We don't need to go in depth here. But what I will say is its ranking on this list goes to its power as an edutainment product. As we talked about in that episode, they didn't create the product with the idea that it would be something found in every school, but it became a product that was found in so many schools. And once you have school systems buying this darn thing on top of all the home users, obviously you're talking just massive, massive markets here. And, you know, back in the mid 80s when we had an IBM PC at a time when the IBM PC was not a great game platform, so you didn't tend to have many games on it. I didn't really play a lot of PC games until the 90s. In the 80s on our PC, we had very, very few games. But three of the games we had were Where in the World, Where in the USA, and Where in Europe is Carmen Sandiego. Because I got exposed to those games at school, and they were fun, and I wanted to be able to play them at home too, you know? So, I mean, those are games that we had. Those are games that I think a lot of families probably had, even if they didn't have a lot of other games. On their home computer. I think that's a big part of how you get that to over 500,000. Carmen Sandiego is really the only case I can think of where edutainment actually worked. That and Oregon Trail. Yeah, I can see Oregon Trail too. So one of two games, I guess, that actually worked. The other thing is, if we look at where it is from 250 to that 500,000 list, that is just over a year, a year and a couple months. Yeah. There it is again. 250,000 to over 500,000 in just over a year and a month or two. Not as many computer games caught fire back then, but if they did catch fire, watch out, because they were straight to the moon. Now that we have covered the generals on the list, the three generals. (laughs) Field marshals. Field marshal, there we go. Yeah. Now that we have covered the field marshals on the list, the big hitters, let's go start tackling some of these commanders. Exactly. So now we are on the list of Platinum Award winners. This one will be still somewhat short, but much longer than the 500,000. 
the Platinum Award winners over 250,000 units sold each. Our first game on the list is for some reason labeled as Advanced Flight Trainer by Electronic Arts, but listeners would know it better as Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Trainer. I don't know why they left Mr. Yeager's name off, but this is the game that we're referring to here, which was certified 5-16-1988. This says a couple of things here, this game here. First of all, and I've brought this up in other episodes, while it's kind of hard to believe today if you didn't grow up with this, back in the day, military simulators, semi to very realistic portrayals of military hardware, mostly planes, but sometimes also other things like tanks and submarines, helicopters, and helicopters, were some of the biggest, hugest games on computer platforms in the United States in the 1980s. This was AAA. Games like Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Trainer were the doom of their day. Now, they didn't sell as much as Doom ended up selling. Doom was even bigger. These were the dooms of their day. These often finicky, usually very slow because they have very advanced graphics that their computers can't run very well, and often very difficult flight simulators. That goes again to the audience in the United States. We've talked about this before. The audience for computer games in the U.S., very different in Europe, I know, but in the U.S., in the 1980s, tended to be an older, more affluent, more educated, and quite frankly, more nerdy type of user. This had to do both with the cost of the computers, because in general, you often didn't have something like, say, the ZX Spectrum, which was just dirt cheap, and you had consoles to kind of fill that niche, which weren't as expensive in the U.S. as they would be someplace like the U.K., because you didn't have the import costs, the tariffs, and and the VAT, the dreaded value-added tax and all of that. You had the consoles to scratch that itch. Since the computers were more expensive and needed more technical know-how to use, those are the kind of people that tended to gravitate towards them. And people that are interested in systems tend to be interested in all kinds of systems. So it's, again, no accident that if you had to really be interested in how computer software worked and how a computer worked in order to use that computer deeply, not that kids didn't play on the Commodore 64, even kids that didn't care how the computer worked, but a lot of the people buying this expensive thing were that kind of person. If you're interested in that system, then it's not a surprise that you're also interested in how military jets work, or you're interested in the intricacies of how Dungeons and Dragons work and how you can manipulate those systems to build a really good or interesting character. It's similar traits that are going to attract computer users to these kind of games. So that's why your RPGs, your flight simulators, that's why these kinds of games were so popular with that audience. It's only later when the computers start coming down in price because of the PC-compatible wars and when computers start getting easier and easier to use as GUI interfaces come in. And then, of course, Windows 95, which actually has something approaching decent memory management for the first time. Thank you. That makes it easier to use a computer and use computer games. It's only then that you start getting the dooms of the world and the action games and getting that action game crowd and getting more of a a teenage crowd that isn't necessarily just the crowd that's interested in the tech side of it. That's when you get that. In this period, it's these people. And that's why Advanced Flight Trainer is here. Uh, And it was a big hit. It was part of Electronic Arts's push in the late 1980s to use more celebrities, put more celebrities on their games. They had done it already with sports games. 
games, which we talked about very recently in our Madden episode, but they were starting to branch out and do it in other ways, too. So they put Chuck Yeager's name on it. It had a good flight model. It wasn't a combat game. It was a flight trainer because Chuck Yeager was a test pilot. That's why they used his name on it, because they did release a sequel that was a combat trainer. I don't recall if it's going to show up on this list or not later. We'll find out together. That's just a long-winded way of saying this is why Advanced Flight Trainer by 5-16-1988 had sold over 250,000 units. Oh, look. Next on the list is another Broderboon game. I'm sensing a trend here. And not a game, though. Another trend. It is also not a game. It is Bank Street Rider, which was one of the very early popular word processors. It was certainly overtaken within a couple of years by WordPerfect, which we may or may not see later, which, of course, then itself was overtaken by Microsoft Word. But when it was first released in the early 1980s, Bank Street Rider was one of the most popular word processor programs, particularly on the Apple II. It came to Broderboon from outside. This was kind of the beginning of Broderboon doing things other than games, because this opportunity came to them to publish this Bank Street Rider, and they took that opportunity, and it did really well for them. That's what caused them to also look for other avenues where they could expand out of games, such as the aforementioned print shop. Bank Street Rider, very important for that. There's not much more to say about it. It's a word processor. It had its day in the sun, and then it lost its day in the sun. But before that happened, it did achieve sales of over 250,000 units by February the 26th, 1987. Okay, the next two confuse me, because it is exactly the same thing twice. California Games by Epics Incorporated. Yes, it's probably a typo. I don't know if they accidentally failed to include a game, if there's a mystery game missing from the list, or if they just screwed up as a typo. But as you said, since the dates are different for the certifications, it could be that there was supposed to be another product here that didn't make it. The world will never know. The lost product. However, we have California Games from Epics, as you said, which was either certified on 5.16.88 or 8.17.88. Just choose your favorite. It doesn't matter. California Games, we did an Epics episode. The Games series was their very popular breakout series, starting with Summer Games in 1985. And they had done mostly traditional games in their first few products in the series. They did Summer Games, they did Winter Games, they did Summer Games 2, they did World Games, which had a couple of weird things in it, like the Caber Toss, while also having a couple of traditional games in it. It was kind of a weird catch-all. All of those games did very well, but none of them burst onto the scene and did so well so quickly as California games did. Now, we're going to see a couple of these others on the big list here, even in the 250,000 category, but it took them longer to get there. California games was the brainchild of Matt Householder. We talked about this in our Epics episode. The company was in California, and some of the so-called extreme sports were starting to get popular in California skateboarding, BMX biking, and stuff like that. And so he came up with the idea, he was kind of interested in some of these games, and so he came up with the idea of doing some of these beach games, extreme games, whatever you wanted to call them, and making that the next games product. Yeah, I think it just struck a chord with the audience, because unlike Olympic sports, which you have to be this great athlete to do, you know, a lot of people were rollerblading or skateboarding or BMX biking or playing hacky sack. It felt like something relatable, I think especially to people in California, which is a very populous state. You know, good idea for an extension of the series and one that was very successful. What's next on our list, Jeffrey? Next on the list is a game that we covered extensively over multiple episodes. 
a one-on-one basketball game. And with March having passed us by here and March Madness, Mm -hmm. Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one by Electronic Arts. Exactly. Certified Platinum 72087. So again, since we've discussed it, we don't have to go into a lot of detail, but this was really the start of Electronic Arts becoming Electronic Arts. They had released their first slate of games earlier in 83. Some of them did okay. Some of them did less okay. But there wasn't really a company identity yet because they were trying to build the company around the artists as rock stars. That never really worked very well, and it meant that the corporate brand of Electronic Arts was nowhere near as strong as some of the individual brands of people like Bill Budge that were making games for them. This was kind of the pivot point. It was released in late 1983. It was the first time that they had licensed sports personalities. It was one of the first times that anybody had licensed sports personalities for a game. Not quite the first, but one of the first. It was kind of the beginning of building the Electronic Arts brand and creating kind of a space for it, which was a brand that involved a celebrity endorsement and participation, because sometimes these celebrities participated to a degree in the creation of the game. Dr. J spent some time with them, Larry Bird not so much. Of course, it's the beginning of EA being successful in sports. It would be years still before the EA sports concept took shape. We did an episode on that. This was the beginning of realizing, hey, sports is an area that we can have some success in, and you don't get to EA Sports, you don't get to John Madden football without going through Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one. It was a massive hit. It reached 100,000, or it was certified that, it might have reached it sooner, on 1-20-1986, and then it got that new certification just over a year, about a year and a half later, it more than doubled its sales. Again, you can see how computer platforms, how the sales are picking up steam as the decade goes on because the install bases get bigger, et cetera, et cetera. So there you go. That's Dr. J and Larry Bird. Go one-on-one. Next on the list from a company called Microprose, which brought me such wonderful game called Master of Orion, which is not appearing on this list. <laughs> we have F-15 Strike Eagle. Absolutely. Certified two seventeen eighty seven. So again, these were the big boys. The flight simulators were the big kids on the block. These were the huge games. You can definitely see that with audio cards back then. If you look at an old ISA or even a PCI sound card from the 80s and 90s, you actually see a big multi-pin D-sub port on it that's usually yellow. That was specifically called the game port, where you would plug in your peripherals, specifically a joystick or flight pedals. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Realism was the goal, and that was kind of the downfall of flight simulators in the end, because flight simulators always had to push the technological edge, because that's what the audience demanded, an audience that's into a realistic simulator wants that simulator to be as immersively realistic as possible. Now, there's some caveats to that, and we talked about this in our Madden episode recently when we talked about EA producer Rich Hilleman's approach to flight simulators. Because technically, realism means that you're going through a 15-point checklist before you can actually fire a missile at the enemy. They are not going for complete and utter realism in these games. But they are trying to go for immersive realism, which is that yeah, you dial back the realism a little bit to keep it fun, but you want it to be as immersively realistic as possible. You want it to feel realistic to the layman, to the computer user playing this game that doesn't know that there's a 16-point checklist anyway, so they're not going to miss it. What that means is you need to have the best graphics and sound possible. 
flight simulators were always the games pushing the envelope. Some of the very first games with polygonal graphics on computer platforms in the late 1980s were these flight simulators. They got away with it two ways. First of all, they were slow, because for this kind of simulation enthusiast, getting it right was more important than getting it fast. This isn't the Doom crowd that are like, oh my gosh, Doom is running at 60 frames per second and my adrenaline is pumping. They're okay with it going a little slower. I mean, would they like it faster? Well, sure they would. Everyone wants their games to be better, but they're okay with sacrificing a little speed for accuracy. The other thing that they got away with is these are planes, and they're in the sky, and the sky is empty except for your opponents. Yes, there is a ground. You have to have a ground, if nothing else, to make sure that you have something to crash into if you screw up. But they're not populating the ground very much. The ground is very sparsely populated. Even if you're doing a bombing mission or a surface-to-air support mission where you're attacking ground targets, you're not having a dense environment of three-dimensional trees and buildings and all with detailed textures. Since your play arena doesn't have to have as many objects or as detailed in objects, and because you're not trying to get the best frame rate possible, they could do things like put polygons in the games in the 1980s, even though it wasn't the best choice always in terms of what the system could handle reasonably. So they were always pushing the envelope. And when your market was these guys, when these guys were the biggest part of your market, that worked. You could put in that extra technology, you could do a manual the size of War and Peace with all the printing costs that entails. You could do really state-of-the-art advanced graphics that take more manpower and more time and therefore more money to create. You could do all that because these were your best sellers. They would make money in that context. There's a lot of people to this day who still enjoy a lot of flight sims. They do. The biggest flight sim that I can think of right now is actually Elite, Dangerous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There are people I've seen who've done really tricked out setups to have their flight chair with a full HOTAS setup. <laughs> yeah. A HOTAS setup is where you have actual throttle control that's like a real plane. You got your flight stick, even pedals too. Some people have it where you have... This chair that will rotate back and forth in accordance to what's going on with the game. It'll get feedback. They're like, if you're pulling up or pushing down, the chair will tilt forward or tilt back. It's insane. Absolutely. Even though there are people that still like that today, within the context of the larger computer game market, they are a very small portion of the market. Oh, yes. That audience has not grown very much since the 1980s. It's grown a little, but not much. Whereas the broader computer game playing audience has grown exponentially. These people are just as demanding as ever with their realism. But it takes more and more and more people, more and more and more man hours, more and more and more technology to get that ultra realism. And it's just not worth the expense based on what you're going to sell for most companies to do that. An F-15, that was pretty much the big fighter plane of the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The flight simulator died for the most part. Obviously, there are still people that hold on. But the flight simulator died as a frontline major, the genre of computer games in the mid to late 90s because the audience stagnated and it wasn't cost effective. And so the big companies stopped making those games. But here we are again. We've so far had two of these flight simulators in our 250,000-plus category, which is big, big business at the time. And this is the game that saved Microprose, because Microprose was near bankruptcy. Its early games had not been particularly successful. 
and it was close to insolvency, and then F-15 came along, and it just did so well that it saved the company. And of course, in the 80s, Microprose was the military simulator company. When we think of them today, we think Civilization, but Civilization was 1991. Microprose was founded in 1982. In its first decade of existence, it was the military simulation company, and this was the biggest hit. Well, we're just going to have to speed things up here with Epic's thing, Fast Load. So, Jeffrey, I know you've told this story before. Maybe. You owned a Commodore 64. I may still own a somewhat functioning Commodore 64 off to my left. I haven't powered a sucker on in years. You were an avid player of the Commodore 64 when you were a kid in the 80s. Yep. Tell me, Jeffrey... When little Jeffrey decided, I want to play a game on my Commodore 64, was it like going to your NES, plugging in the cartridge, maybe having to take it out once to blow on it and put it back in, and then suddenly playing your game? Is that what it was like when little Jeffrey decided he wanted to play a game on the Commodore 64? When little Jeffrey wanted to play Zaxxon, little Jeffrey went down to the computer, took the floppy disk that said Zaxxon on it, put it into the floppy receptacle, known as a disk drive. Then he read the nice little happy piece of paper that Dad wrote for him that said, when you want to play this game, type in these magical letters, and the game will load. And it was usually something like load star comma one. Then the game would load and load, and Jeffrey would go upstairs (laughs) and have dinner and come back down. They would still be loading. Oh, look, it's done. (laughs) Yeah. So, as anyone who used a Commodore 64 knows, the disk drive was not the fastest race car in the auto race. There was a reason we preferred cartridges, kids. That's right. And, And we do have to recall that the Commodore 64 did have a cartridge slot, so there was a way to get that instant gratification. Just not with floppies. And actually, according to uh, Brian Bagnall's uh, seminal books on the Commodore 64, apparently what happened is, you know, Commodore was always looking to cut costs and was always looking to make things cheaper. So they were constantly redesigning boards and whatnot right up to the last minute because they were trying to get costs down because that's what Jack Trammell liked. Apparently, at one point in the design, somebody accidentally erased, and we mean physically erased, because this is when computer-aided design was still in its infancy, and so a lot of the stuff was being drawn out on actual (laughs) drafting paper, not in a CAD software program. Somebody accidentally erased the high-speed lines for the floppy drive, and nobody realized it. And so what you got was a floppy drive that interfaced with the computer on a very, very, very slow internal connection. (laughs) That meant that it was absolutely terrible. It took forever to load anything. So we talked about this in our Epics episode. The Epics people, about half of them came from a company called Starpath that had created something called the Supercharger for the Atari VCS that allowed for playing of special uh, cassette tapes on the VCS and had more RAM and advanced features and whatnot. Epics had some hardware people that knew what they were doing with hardware. It wasn't just software people. So they came up with this great idea to create a piece of hardware that you could interface with your Commodore 64 disk drive that allowed games to load faster. And it did allow games to load much faster. It's still a little slow because you can't fully overcome the problems of the hardware. It was a significant improvement. And so this was the most successful product Epic's ever put out. We'll see several Epic's games, as we already saw California games, in the over 250,000. But remember, we've just got ranges here. We don't know from this how many units over 250,000 they sold. 
I don't know the exact number that Fastload sold, but it was probably knocking on the door of half a million. I mean, this was the most successful thing Epic's ever released. And it's because those disk drives were just so terrible. And the Fastload was a good, solid piece of hardware that really improved on things. I believe this is the only piece of hardware that's in here, but I think the reason that it technically still qualifies for the list, the way it worked is you would put it in the cartridge slot of the Commodore 64. It had some software on that cartridge, yeah, and then it had a way to connect the floppy disk into it, so it was using that faster cartridge connection to the computer as opposed to the standard way that the disk drive was doing it. So it's kind of a hybrid software-hardware approach, I believe. And so that's why, even though I've been talking about it as a hardware product primarily, it does appear on our list of software products since it was a cartridge, and it did have some programs on that cartridge that helped make things go. Fastload, make computer go. Make computer go fast. Make computer strong. Bonus point if you get that reference, kids. (laughs) Next on the list is another military simulator from Microprose, Gunship, because we have guns on our ship and they need to go kaboomy. That's right. This time we have ourselves a helicopter simulation, which, as uh, Jeffrey mentioned earlier, were also a popular subset of the whole flight simulator thing. My favorite military simulator on a PC was a helicopter game. I forget the name of it. Lost in the midst of ancient times, but it was fun to play. Absolutely. Gunship simulated the AH-64 Apache helicopter, specifically. It was done by Andy Hollis, who uh, was a real flight simulator guru. F-15, of course, was done by the man, the myth, the legend himself, Sid Meier. Gunship was more Andy Hollis. It was, again, a massive, massive success. You know, there'd been a series in the 1980s of helicopter television programs of all things, and movies. There was the television series Airwolf, and there was the very popular movie Blue Thunder, which were both about high-tech helicopter gunships. And, you know, this was the 80s. That's another thing that we didn't mention in regards to military simulators. But, of course, this was the raw, raw, late Cold War, Reagan-era 80s, American, America is good, America is great. Soviet evil empire, our military will kick everyone's butt and we're recovering from the embarrassment of Vietnam. And so, you know, popular culture, there's Rambo, there's Missing in Action, there's all these movies about going back to Vietnam or Afghanistan or these other areas and triumphing in a way we couldn't in the 70s. You know, that's another big part of why these military simulators were so big, because they're mimicking other pop culture at the same time, which in turn is mimicking the political message of Ronald Reagan. And and say what you will about Reagan and his policies, and believe me, I could say a lot, just as a matter of historical fact— In the middle of the 1980s, Reagan was very popular in the United States. I'm not saying necessarily that he's popular with me. I'm just stating a fact. He won in a landslide in 1984 in the election. This kind of rah-rah, hooray the military mentality was there, and you had Airwolf, you had Blue Thunder. These were very popular, and so that's why specifically helicopter simulators like Gunship were also popular, because it was dialing into that very specific milieu of military kind of action-adventure stuff that was going on in cinema at the same time. So that's why you not only see a fighter game like F-15 Strike Eagle here, but you also see a helicopter game like Microprose's Gunship by Andy Hollis. Certified Platinum, we should mention, 524-1988. I guess it's time to play some hardball with Accolade. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-
Hardball by Accolade. Funnily enough, this was one of the very few computer games that I had in the mid-1980s as well. And I can see why. I mean, it's a baseball game. As you can tell by the humming earlier, I played it quite a bit because if memory serves, and God, I hope it did, that was the the theme song of the game, at least uh, in the version that I had on the IBM PC. I played it a lot. It was a fun game. We did an Accolade episode, I think, I hope. One of the things that we mentioned at the time when we did Accolade is that something that they tried to do with their early products, because they were created as a spinoff by a couple of Activision founders, Alan Miller and Bob Whitehead, what they really tried to do in the early days is they were trying to make games that were more cinematic, that had interesting and deep gameplay elements, but also had slicker cinematic elements. I don't think that defines Accolade for its entire history, but that was kind of their goal with their very first products. So with Hardball, with doing the baseball simulation, they also did a much slicker presentation. They were using television camera angles, like using a behind-the-pitcher view when the uh, pitcher is, is pitching the ball to the batter and stuff like that to try to make it seem more like watching a television broadcast of baseball. Again, something that EA Sports would take up, of course, in the late 1980s and early 1990s with things like John Madden football. I think hardball is so high up on this list because sports is always going to be somewhat popular. Baseball was certainly a very popular sport in the 80s, and hardball was just so much better. It was a slicker product than the other baseball games available, such as they were, on computer platforms. So that's why I think we see Bob Whitehead's own hardball on this list. And of course, it was a long-running series. It petered out. Other game series eventually overtook it. It was a long-running series. I owned the original, and I also owned hardball, I think, five much later. Didn't own any of the ones in between. It was one of the big baseball games. And so that's why we find it here on our list. Certified Platinum, 224-1988. We have not done an Accolade episode. Oh my gosh. Well, we're going to have to do that one of these days. I, I did a search for it. The only thing that says Accolade is one of the This Month in Video Game History. Well, I just gave you a sneak preview of what an Accolade episode would be like. Since I have talked to uh, three of the five CEOs of the company from throughout its history, yeah, I have stuff I can say about that. We're going we're gonna to have to do that one of these days, Jeffrey. Add it to the list. Add it to the list. But for now, you got a sneak preview of the non-existent Accolade episode, if you're listening to these at the time of release, with Hardball, (laughs) right here in our 250,000 Platinum Award winners. This company got a Platinum Award for Jeopardy back on 4-14-89. What is Share Data Incorporated? That's correct! I'm Alex. Shouldn't I be the one asking the answers and demanding the questions? No, Trebek. We are not allowing this this time. (laughs) That's right. Next on our list is Jeopardy, put out by uh, some obscure company called Shared Data Inc. and reached platinum status on 4-14-89. That's, I think, just about near the end of when this tracks things. April, I think, is the last month where anything is certified. Won't spend time on this. Game shows are popular. Game shows were popular, really, really popular back then. Jeopardy was a well-known brand. Again, it's one of these programs that your hardcore gamers aren't going to buy, but this is the kind of program that you might buy if you're a young professional or whatever that has just bought a computer and it's like, oh, when I want some games or programs or whatever to run, it's like, oh, Jeopardy, I like Jeopardy, I watch that on the TV. I'm a smart, sophisticated man and or woman who knows the questions to all the answers, to put it in Jeopardy speak. 
yeah, I'll buy that Jeopardy game. I don't really know anything about share data. I'm sure I could look it up, but I'd probably have to look long and hard. I'm sure most people don't. It's not important in any way. It just goes to show that sometimes the best-selling products are going to be the most familiar products, and licenses really can have power. I think in some ways the power of licenses have diminished in modern times in games for a variety of reasons, but in, in this period, slap a license on something and you've got yourself a platinum award winner, like Jeopardy. All right, I'll take games sold for uh, 250000 Alex. Jingle disc, jingle disc. High tech expressions. 90287 is when they want it. All right. So, high tech expressions, they're not a particularly important company in video game history, but they did have the market cornered on programs for really young users, young children. They created a lot of games that were semi-educational and it also were, were games. I mean, they weren't strict educational programs, but they had a Sesame Street license, for instance. That's the market they were looking towards. So that's not something that's going to be supremely important in video game history, but is something that's going to sell a lot of units. Because again, if you're a parent and you're a parent that isn't necessarily very savvy on this stuff, and you're just looking something for your young child to enjoy on your new computer, because got to justify this expense by making it usable by the whole family. You know, you might buy some games and the young user section and high-tech expression is going to have a lot of those. Judging purely by the name, it sounds almost like a Christmas game. It is. It's a Christmas-themed program. I'm actually going to, you know, give you all a peek behind the curtain. I don't normally have to do this for games, but this time I am bringing up a video so that I can see what the heck this thing is, because heck if I know. We've opened up on a very snowy scene in a glorious uh, CGA graphics. I believe the IBM PC version may have only been available in glorious CGA graphics. That is four color graphics for those of you who don't remember the horrors of those times. So I'm seeing a lot of uh, blue and pink and black and white, those classic four IBM colors. Nothing much is happening right now. Oh, that PC speaker is peeking away. Okay, we've got a nice uh, Christmas scene. The cat is sleeping on the rug next to the roaring fire. There is a train zooming around the lighted Christmas tree. I do see what can only be meant to be uh, cookies and milk left out for Santa. But if I saw cookies like that and I was Santa, I would not eat them. Oh, and now there's a mouse and a toy soldier. The mouse just winked at me. I still don't know what we're accomplishing here. Okay, the soldier and the wind-up mouse are going towards the cat. Uh-oh, the soldier just poked the cat on the nose. That's a mood. That PC speaker is still chirping away in the background. I mean, I know it makes me want to go on. <laughs> okay, yes, yeah, so now the, the mouse has gone back. It has grabbed a candy cane from the lower part of the Christmas tree. What a scamp. Oh, here comes the train. Another mouse is driving it. This is not very sanitary. And into the train he goes. I assume these are not cutscenes. I assume that me as the player is making some of these things happen. But this is not a Let's Play video. It's more fun that way. So I don't know exactly what we're doing. Oh, there's cheese and fish for the cat. Very nice. The cat was not left out. The cat looks very grateful right now. Very grateful smile on the cat's face. Cheese and fish. 
I don't know what the cat would do with the cheese, but the cat seems happy. Maybe the mouse and him are friends, and so he's happy that his friend has some cheese. I don't know. There was a mouse earlier. Oh, and there goes Santa. He's flying away in a glorious white silhouette. Oh, and Rudolph's nose is even there, and Santa Claus is coming to town is playing. I cannot imagine they got the rights for that. I cannot imagine that is licensed, but maybe they did. I don't know. I do not know what just happened. I know I could probably find some Let's Play video and find out what just happened, but you know what? That's my job. We're just going to leave it at the commentary. We're just going to leave it with that commentary there, and if you want to find out more, if that really intrigued you into thinking, I have got to see that cat go gaga for that fish and cheese, then figure out more yourself. Jingle Disc is for you. Exactly. But just remember, as I said, I mean, it was geared towards young users, very young users, like preschool users. Again, you're buying a new computer, you want something for your your young child. High Tech Expressions has products geared towards your child. You buy it, and before you know it, 250,000 units have flown off the shelves. We've already covered this one, but it's Karate Champ. There it is again, and of course we talked about how quickly it moved from 250,000 to 500,000 as it really gained steam. There you go, moving on. Next on the list is Karnov by Data East. That's right. Karnov is another coin-op classic from Data East. We're going to see a lot of Data East coin-op games here. I think Data East was as aggressive as anybody at getting on the Commodore 64 market. I also have to wonder if some of the others were not members of the SPA. Because looking at the total list here, there are going to be a lot of Data East games on this list. A lot of Data East games. You're not seeing any games from Konami or Capcom or Taito. I have to imagine that some of their games did well, too. I'm guessing that Data East was the only one of them that actually joined the SPA. Data East was, I think, much more American in its North American branch than a lot of these other companies. A lot of these companies went back and forth between having Japanese individuals and American individuals run their American branches. Throughout this entire period, the company was run by Bob Lloyd, an American. His kind of point man on the home software was Jim Wims, who had come up with a magic and was really dialed in to the American retail market as well. I just have to think that because of that, they joined the SPA and some other companies didn't. So that's why we're going to see Data East over and over and not see like Konami or Capcom or whatever. It's also possible their games just did better on these platforms. Obviously, Data East was also on the NES, and I'm sure some of their games did well on the NES, but they were not the same powerhouse on the NES that Capcom and Konami were. I mean, Konami and Capcom were the top two third parties, top three when you include a claim with them, the American company. Data East, while they still did fine on the NES, were lower down on the list. So maybe it's also that they compensated for that by really pushing into the C64 market in the home computer market as well. Karnoff is another coin-op conversion. It did very well. It sold over 250,000 units. Load Runner by Broderboon again. There you go, yeah. In terms of pure games, this is, uh, well, it's clearly Broderboon's biggest hit because it's the only pure game with no educational connotations at all that appears in the 250,000 from Broderboon. We're going to see them a lot in the 250,000, but this is the only one that's pure game. This was their biggest pure game hit. I mean, the Carmen Sandiego series was even bigger, and they were also games. It may not be fair to exclude them from the pure game category because the first one was made to be a game, and it just happened to hit big as an education product as well. Outside of the Carmen Sandiego series, Load Runner was the big one. They misspelled it here. They misspelled it L-O-A-D, 
Of course, it's L-O-D-E because it refers to mineral loads, not carrying loads. Oops. You know, whatever. It kind of hit a sweet spot. It came out in a period when the Apple II was still very popular, and then it was ported other places as well. It kind of hit a good mix of some action and some strategy. It had its course editor, which, you know, you could make your own courses, which gave it greater longevity. It became huge in Japan. I don't think the sales here include Japanese sales, but it became really big in Japan, so big that there was an arcade game (laughs) version of it made by Irem (laughs) because it was so popular over there. It was released for the Famicom over there and did very, very well on the Famicom. Hudson released it there, and it was one of their first big hits. Yeah, it just had, I think, a good mix of strategy and emergent gameplay and ability to design your own courses. And it had a longevity because they kept porting it to more and more platforms. And probably because it was an arcade game, that probably helped loop back in more people to discover it than on computer as well, kind of having that synergy. That's why you see uh, Douglas Smith's famous Load Runner, which we did talk about in our Broderbund episode, which I do know we did. We'll leave it at that, but certified platinum 10 of 5, a 1987. Next up is another edutainment one, Math Blaster by Davidson and Associates. You know, Math Blaster is one of the biggest of all time edutainment products. It put Davidson and Associates on the map. Some of you may be saying Davidson Associates on the map. I've never heard of Davidson and Associates, and maybe you haven't because they were primarily an education company. But in the early 1990s, they bought a little studio that was just about to release its very first self-published game after having worked for other companies all along. And they'd been working on a new PC program called Warcraft. They needed money to become a publisher, and so they agreed to be acquired by uh, Davidson & Associates, so a Blizzard Entertainment. During that entire period, when it was releasing all its massive hits in the 90s, that was a Davidson & Associates company which was gobbled up by Sedant, which was gobbled up by Havas, which was gobbled up by Vivendi, which merged with Activision, which broke away from Vivendi, and which is now in the process of being gobbled up by Microsoft. Davidson is a big name, and Math Blaster is the product that put them on the map. It was a husband and wife combination. Bob Davidson kind of ran it. Jan Davidson was the brains behind the product, an educator that was just disgusted at the state of educational software in the early 1980s that she saw as an educator and decided to do something about it. Math Blaster is the game that made them really big because it was it's educational. It's not meant to be an entertainment game first, but it combined video games and math. I do believe the IP may still be around. I'm not sure. I mean, it, it lasted forever and ever. Obviously, it's not a Davidson and Associates thing anymore, but the IP lasted forever and ever and ever. It's kind of like Typing of the Dead, which was fun for people where, you know, you're killing zombies by typing things. In this case, it's like a Space Invaders style, you know, shooter game, except what you're shooting is the correct numbers that answer the math problem as the numbers are falling (laughs) towards you or appearing on the screen. You know, it was kind of a fun Twitch action game that made you learn math, too. And so this was a huge product, as you can see here. And it's the game that made Davidson and Associates, and it's the reason that they were able to have the clout and influence to buy something like Blizzard. Very important in computer game history, even if it's more of an educational product than a game. Here it is on our 250,000 level. Certified 9387. Next one is Music Construction Set by Electronic Arts, part of the initial release, if I recall correctly. No, it wasn't one of the initial. You're thinking of the next game on the list, which we should actually do as a pair here, Pinball Construction Set. 
They are the next two games on the list. They happen to fall alphabetically next to each other, and it's uh, convenient to just talk about them in tandem then. We talked about Pinball Construction Set because, of course, we did the launch titles of EA as its own specific episode in addition to our History of EA episodes. Pinball Construction Set was so revolutionary because Bill Budge had been working at Apple and had worked on the Lisa computer at Apple. The Lisa was kind of the first mainstream commercially released computer with that GUI interface. I know it didn't have the first GUI interface, but I'm just talking about starting to get that concept that Xerox had been playing around with at Park out into the wider world. And of course, Lisa was a huge flop because it was way too expensive. I mean, it was aimed at businesses, not at home users, but it was still just way too expensive. And then the Mac overshadowed it and et cetera. Because he had worked on the Lisa, he had been exposed to GUI interfaces before a lot of people had been exposed to them. He decided to follow up his uh, pinball game Raster Blaster with a make-your-own-pinball table game that combined the great physics that he already had put together from Raster Blaster with this do-it-yourself, make-your-own-stuff kind of deal. He did it with a GUI interface using a joystick, because mice weren't a common thing yet, but it was a full GUI interface, drag and drop. So that captured imaginations because it was something people hadn't seen before in terms of being able to manipulate stuff on a computer in that way. Because Pinball Construction Set was so successful, that led Electronic Arts to do a whole bunch of other construction sets as well. Music Construction Set was actually created by a teenage prodigy by the name of Will Harvey on his own. He wasn't calling it Construction Set necessarily, but he built this music creation program. When the EA people discovered that, they just thought that was the greatest thing. And because they already had this construction set thing going, they were like, this is just a perfect product to build out on things like Pinball Construction Set. They named it Music Construction Set. Again, it was a unique productivity product. You know, just like Print Shop found a niche for printing banners, there weren't a lot of great ways to make music as a layman on these early computers. And so it captured imagination as something new and different to do on a computer, maybe something that you could use to show off your computer to friends. It's like, look at my computer, I can make music on it. I think that was probably a lot of the appeal. And of course, EA put their clout behind it, and it was very successful. That's really all we have to say, especially since we talked about Pinball Construction Set in such detail already. These two, 11.587 for Music Construction Set, 5.16.88 for Pinball Construction Set, reaching that magic 250,000 level. Next on the list is another Brodaboon game, but this one isn't even a game. It joins Print Shop Companion. That's right, because Print Shop was an ecosystem. It wasn't just the Print Shop program. It was all the add-ons that added more of this, more of that, more of the other. I don't know specifically what Print Shop Companion added. Let's see if I can find out. Ah, here we go. It added a calendar feature, an updated graphic editor, font and border editors. Change fonts now. Oh, my. And a creature maker game. As well as, of course, an expanded library of fonts, borders, and graphics. All very important for making those banners. This was basically an expansion to the print shop. It was created by a different programmer. The original program was created by David Balsam and Martin Martin Kahn. The companion was developed by Roland Gustafsson. And it just added more, more, more of that Dr. Pepper taste you've been searching for. Just again, print shop was big, so even if only half your users buy the expansion... Well, you've reached 250000 right there, haven't you? Yep. So, so it's not surprising that an expansion to something that sold over 500,000 units and was very popular and beloved would also sell a boatload of units, in this case, over 250000 That's how you keep those evergreen products going. That's right. This looks like another edutainment game slash thingy, Reader Rabbit by The Learning Company. 
this, again, it's the product that put the learning company on the map. The two big edutainment companies that were purely devoted to edutainment, not something like Broderboon that sometimes released something that happened to fit in there. But the two companies dedicated to it that were huge were Davidson and Associates and the learning company. Math Blaster put Davidson on the map. Reader Rabbit put the learning company on the map. Again, you know, Math Blaster had tons of spinoffs. Reader Rabbit had tons of spinoffs. These were basically the programs. If you wanted to get a program to teach your kid math, you got Math Blaster. If you wanted a program to help your young child develop reading skills and reading comprehension skills, you got them Reader Rabbit. I mean, they had the corner on their markets. The Learning Company, even though they were primarily in edutainment, does have a couple of video game connections. First of all, one of the founders of the company was actually Warren Robinette the creator of the Atari adventure game. He did do a game that did very well for them called Rocky's Boots early on. He ended up leaving the company. And the other, of course, is they were responsible for the downfall of Broderbund. After the learning company was bought out by another company, they basically started using their superior distribution and financial clout to kind of grind Broderbund into the ground with similar products. We talked about that in our Broderbund episodes. Then after that, they acquired Broderbund, essentially a hostile takeover. Then they managed to dupe Mattel into taking the whole thing for their interactive division. Turned out it was losing boatloads of money, and that cost the CEO of Mattel, Jill Barad, her job, and they ended up selling it to a turnaround company for like $1. It was all very ugly. Now, that was technically a different learning company because they were bought out by kind of a corporate raider company that then renamed themselves the learning company, not poor Warren Robinette and company, the educators that he founded the company with back in 1980-ish that were responsible for that. But those are kind of the connections that it has to larger video game history. But yeah, Reader Rabbit and Math Blaster, those were far and away the big edutainment products. And so it's really no surprise to see both of them in our platinum circle. That was certified... 8-30-1988. I guess we're going to have to go back to Data East here with Ring King. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a wrestling game. It's just another one of their games. I mean, it was an early wrestling game. Again, an arcade game, and I think it was in part popular because there weren't that many of them at first. They had those fighting game niches. They had Karate Champ, they had Ring King. There's not much more to say. Again, it's more something you think of as a coin-op slash console game than you think of as a computer game since it was on those platforms as well, but obviously it did well enough on computer platforms to get certified as of 8-17-1988. Next up is another We Want to Do Some Military Simulation here with Silent Service by Micropose. Exactly. Another Sid Meier game. This was Sid Meier saying, well, I've done planes. What do I want to do now? I'll do submarines. That sounds fun. It's a submarine simulator in the same way the gunship is a helicopter simulator. And F-15 Strike Eagle is a plane simulator, jet fighter simulator. We are certainly getting air, land, and sea there. Yes, we're getting all the branches, you know, because the Marines and the Army are the ones that do the helicopters, not the Air Force or the Navy. We have attack helicopters for close support of our ground forces. We have our Air Force up in the sky, and now we have our glorious Navy under the waters. So, yeah. There's the trifecta. But you can see Microprose was the simulator company. I mean, I, I said that before, and you can see that here. And they were far and away the most successful of the simulator companies. Other companies had successful simulator products. We already saw Electronic Arts' advanced flight trainer, Chuck Eager's advanced flight trainer right here. We'll definitely see some other companies' games uh, coming up eventually. Microprose was the king because they they're the ones with the majority of the, uh, the 250,000 hits. I think a lot of that was, you know, we talked about this because we did episodes, you know, Bill Steely, the CEO, he was a pilot. He was an Air Force pilot, Air Force reservist. I mean, he had been active duty, but at this time was Air Force reservist. 
He was a great marketer and he really played up his Wild Bill pilot persona to give that extra little bit of legitimacy to Microprose products as the definitive military simulations. And of course, Sid Meier is just a brilliant programmer. I mean, can't discount that either. There's another one, the trifecta there for Microprose with silent service, certified 9-1-1987. Next up, we have Skyfox by Electronic Arts. That sounds like another simulation game. <laughs> Almost. It's it's not really a simulation. It's more of a fast action game. It's first person. You know, it's cockpit view. It's science fiction. It's more about the action. It's more Wing Commander than Strike Eagle. I just make that comparison because Wing Commander, while it may have some physics, is not really trying to be a, a realistic space simulator in the same way that an elite is trying to be a realistic space sim. Sky Fox, it's, it's another game. It was created by another teenage prodigy, Ray Toby. Just like F-15 Strike Eagle saved Microprose, Sky Fox saved Electronic Arts. We talked about this in our EA episode, but even though some of their early games like Pinball Construction said had done well, a lot of their early games had not done well. Not enough of them to sustain the failures, and they had had a round of layoffs in late 1983. They were running out of cash. Sky Fox came their way thanks to Steve Wozniak. Steve Wozniak was on the board at EA. Tripakins knew him because Tripakins worked at Apple before he founded EA. Ray Toby introduced himself to Steve Wozniak at a computer trade show, and then Wozniak, looking out for his buddies at EA, basically said, you know, this kid's amazing, work with him. So he published Skyfox through him, and it was an incredibly successful, massive hit. Sold over 300,000 copies. We know that one because Ray Toby on his webpage said that. He has the royalty checks, he knows. So, of course, that still fits in here with our between 250 and 500,000. We know this one sold over 300,000. And at a time when Electronic Arts was in a precarious financial situation, Skyfox came along and saved them. We got some real saviors here in the platinum category, including Skyfox certified 11 5 1987. We get to go back to the game series with Summer Games 1 by Epic Incorporated. Exactly. Of course, it was just called Summer Games, but there was later Summer Games 2, so the SPA chart is putting the one on there just to kind of distinguish them. We've done an Epics episode. Just again, kind of the interesting thing here is Epics was a company that was struggling a little bit at the time this game was conceived. They ended up buying another company that was struggling, Starpath. Starpath brought in a lot of creative talent. They had been working on a kind of track and field game. Then with the Olympics coming up, they kind of all switched gears and decided to do the Summer Games. It's an interesting game because it was really created by a team. There were artists, there were musicians, there were separate designers slash programmers working on individual events. You know, it was a series of mini games essentially. It was created by a big team. This was one of the first times that you really saw a team creating a game in the context of the uh, computer game industry where you often just had one person creating a whole game themselves or maybe just one partner and then maybe a contractor doing the sound. But you didn't have like a team of six or eight or whatever people working on a single game. And it showed in the quality. I mean, it came out in 84. You know, it had some very fun games, good graphics, good effects, all of that. And of course, that vaulted it into to superstar status here. 250,000 units sold in another one of these company savers. I mean, Epics wasn't on the verge of bankruptcy. It was just kind of puttering along. But this is definitely the game that launched Epics into a major computer game company, even if that didn't last for them for very long. And that was certified 5-16-1988. Next up is on that non-existent accolade episode, Test Drive. <laughs> Test Drive is an incredibly important game in video game history. As a game, it was popular in its time. You can see that here. It was a new kind of racing game. 
because it wasn't just a race. Unlike most other racing games where you're just driving around a course racing other cars, you know, like a pole position or something like that. In this game, you were asked to choose between five different so-called supercars or luxury cars, the Lamborghini Countach, the Lotus Esprit Turbo, the Chevrolet Corvette, the Porsche 911, or the Ferrari Testarossa. You're driving down winding, narrow streets, avoiding traffic, avoiding the police who are chasing after you. You're kind of this outlaw in this fast, sexy car. That really appealed. There had uh, been an arcade game not that long before that, Chase HQ, which did something a little similar. This was something that was starting to come in, and Test Drive just captured that and was really well done. And it was really well done because it was done by the people at Distinctive Software in Canada, Don Matrix Company, which would, of course, be purchased later by Electronic Arts and become EA Canada and become the center for EA Sports. And Don Matrix became one of the most important executives within all of Electronic Arts, rising to become VP of Worldwide Studios before leaving for Microsoft and having a run at Xbox as well. This wasn't the game that they got their start with. They'd done some other games before that, but this was their massive hit. This is the game that put them on the map. Of course, it ended up being Electronic Arts that reaped the rewards of that more than Accolade in the long term. But in the moment, it also launched a very successful series for Accolade as well. And that's why Test Drive here, over 250,000 units, certified 8-17-1988. I remember playing the SNES version of that one. Yep, absolutely. Test Drive 2, The Duel. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, no surprise that the Need for Speed series that became very popular after that has a lot of test drive in its DNA because, of course, the same studio that created the test drive games then was acquired by EA and did the Need for Speed games. Next up is quite possibly the hardest text adventure game in existence, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Infocom. A game that was so exceptionally difficult that it still thought the Babblefish puzzle was a neat idea. Yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yes. Still never got off the planet. (laughs) Right. The worst puzzle is the Babblefish puzzle. Not that I'm saying that from experience. I mean, I'm I'm not a text adventure genius either, but uh, yes. Very difficult game. This was the high point of Infocom. And of course, we did an Infocom episode. We talked about this. It was released in 84. It was released when Infocom was at the height of their powers, when text adventures were at the height of their popularity, right before King's Quest started changing the tide towards animated graphical adventures. Released when Douglas Adams was at the height of his powers, when he was very assiduously, continually listening to the deadlines go whooshing by instead of writing so long and thanks for all the fish, much to his publisher's chagrin. It was a great collaboration between a a great text adventure programmer, designer Steve Moretzky and Douglas Adams, who really did contribute to it and had a lot of really neat ideas that he was very happy to contribute instead of writing uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, much to his publisher's chagrin. That's why it did so well. Uh, You know, it's it's two uh, powerful brands at the height of their powers, combining forces and really striking a nerve. The difficulty, obviously, nobody knew it was going to kill them like that when they first went out and bought it. It had that power, and of course, uh, so it sold over 250,000 units, certified in 226.87. The next one is one that just seems really weird. The Newsroom by Springboard Software Incorporated. Absolutely. We're talking about a productivity piece of software. We've already seen some of the programs that transformed the printing of banners and cards and clip art side of the industry. We've already seen some of the programs that revolutionized the word processing part of the industry. Well, the newsroom was one of the premier desktop publishing softwares in the industry during this time period. Obviously, if you were a real desktop publisher aficionado, you were getting a Mac and doing it that way. 
If you weren't using Macintosh software to desktop publish, you were probably using the newsroom. I can't claim to know a huge amount about it, but that's what it is. And of course, when we refer to desktop publishing, we're talking about formatting a publication in the way that you would say format a newspaper or a magazine where you have columns of text of different fonts and widths and sizes and you have images interspersed amongst them and you have captions for the images and you have bylines and all of this stuff that you would see in a newspaper and a magazine. This is taking all of that stuff that used to have to be tediously cut out and pasted and arranged by hand and doing it all on your desktop, on your computer instead, and then printing it out so you can print your own newsletter at home from the comfort of your computer. That's desktop publishing software. Again, another one of those revolutionary uses for home computers that kind of emerged in the middle of the 1980s, what once GUI interfaces made that practical. It wasn't practical on very early computers because you didn't have any way to easily move that kind of stuff around on the screen. Definitely very popular as the 80s got going. That's why the newsroom by Springboard Software was certified at the very early date of 9486. Because remember, some of these programs might have hit one of these milestones earlier because just judging by the dates here, nothing was being certified by the SPA until 1985. But the vast majority of the entries on this list are from 87 and 88. So anything on this list that's from 1986, that means that that thing really caught fire and just kept going. Next up, we have Broderboond back again with the print shop, and it's fun, the print shop graphics library, disc one. Yes, this is, of course, the entry for when it hit 250,000. We talked about that when we talked 500,000. But then after that, there's also another print shop, a second print shop expansion, graphics library disc one, just more graphics, more clip art, more whatever, 250,000. Because if you're selling 500, 600, 700,000, whatever the heck they're selling a print shop, all it takes is for a fraction of your install base to buy the uh, expansion, and you have another winner. I mean, this was the bread and butter of Bruderbund. This is why they released fewer and fewer games as time went on, because the print shop business was just out of this world. It made them money, and it made them reliable money. Exactly. Evergreen product. You could count on it year after year after year. There we go. More print shop. Another popular television game show, Wheel of Fortune. By Share Data Incorporated. Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, the rights are owned by the same company. Whenever you see them, whether it's on computer platforms or console platforms, Game Tech released them on some of the console platforms in the same time period. You always see them from the same company because it's a package deal. They're both created by the same company the game shows were. Wheel of Fortune, yeah, it's the same as Jeopardy. We don't really need to say anything different from there because those are just popular game shows. The average Joe on the street's going to buy them for their computer. So certified just as Jeopardy was for 14 1989 Apparently, we get to have Broderboon back again with Where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego? And the follow-up, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? That's right. So, of course, World, we already talked about with the 500,000. This is just its spot in the 250,000. USA was the first sequel. They made a bunch after that. There was Where in Europe. There was Where in Time. There's the very interesting story of Where in North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego. I kid you not. The Video Game History Foundation did a great article on why that product exists, which we will link in the show notes just because we can. USA was the first follow-up, so it's no surprise that then it's the one to do the second best. Sequels always have a little bit of diminishing returns. 
Almost always, I should say. There are exceptions. But sequels usually have some diminishing returns. So here we have USA, which at this point is released 250,000 milestone, hasn't quite reached 500,000. Again, it's going to be on the market for years and years and years after. And it was actually just certified 250,000 right as this went to press for 1989. I'm sure it climbed the charts a little bit after that because it did almost as well as Where in the World, quite frankly. There it is. Next up is another Epic Incorporated game. Winter Games, continuing the game series, because we've already had the other ones. We need winter. Exactly. It was the follow-up to Summer Games. It was the logical follow-up. We've done Summer Games, Summer Olympics. What's the logical sequel? Winter Games, Winter Olympics. Same minigame format, same large team doing it. I mean, not the exact same people, but same concept of a large team doing it. You know, the whole game series was popular. Obviously, uh, World Games didn't quite reach the same heights as Winter Games or Summer Games or California Games did. I think it was a little too quirky, got lost in the shuffle. But here's three games series games. Try saying that five times fast. All appearing in the 250,000 plateau. And uh, Winter Games was certified 516-1988. Productivity software is here. Once more with Word Perfect by the Word Perfect Corporation. You and I used this a lot back in the day. Absolutely. People that are a little younger, when they think of this kind of office product, they think Microsoft, or if they're a little younger than that, they think Google with the G Suite, I mean. The idea now is that there's a leader in this kind of productivity software, and they just release the leading software in every area. It was actually Microsoft that made that happen using their incredible resources that they'd built up through their languages and operating system business to do that. Because when Office first released, the principal programs released were Word, the word processor, Access the Database, and uh, what was then called Multiplan, later called Excel, which was the spreadsheet. At that time, there was not a company that dominated all three like that. If you were a database person, you were buying from Ashton Tate. If you needed a spreadsheet, you were buying from Lotus Development Corporation, makers of Lotus 1, 2, 3. And if you needed a word processor, you were buying from WordPerfect. These companies only specialized in one of the productivity areas, but they absolutely dominated their area. All through the late 80s and early 90s, that's what my family used was WordPerfect. Microsoft finally took them out. That's why WordPerfect's here. There's really no point in going into it anymore. I mean, it's fitting that both Bank Street Rider and WordPerfect were on here because Bank Street Rider was kind of the leader in the early primordial days. WordPerfect kind of took over and never looked back until Microsoft Office and Microsoft Word came along. And it took several versions of Microsoft Office before they finally broke through, but of course they did. WordPerfect is the one certified here, not Microsoft Word. Certified 250,000 units, sold 831, 1987. All right, kids, we're at the end. The last game, where we get to be eaten by a crew, Zork 1 by Infocom. That's right. Well, of course, this is, I want to call it the grandfather of text adventures. Obviously, Adventure, Colossal Cave, whatever you want to call it, is really the grandfather. But Zork 1 is the game that really took off on microcomputers. I mean, yes, Scott Adams' Adventure Land and some of his other adventure titles that we just talked about had happened before it. And as I was pointed out to me recently, at the time of this recording, yes, even before Adventure Land, which I had speculated might be the first adventure game on microcomputers, Gordon Letwin had adapted Adventure on Heathkit computers, which he would later turn into Microsoft Adventure in 1979 when he took it over to Microsoft and made some changes and improvements and ported it there. So there had been a couple of adventure games on microcomputer platforms, but Zork was the first one that really showed the power of interactive fiction that people had experienced in the mainframe world, in the minicomputer world, on the microcomputer. 
the hegemony of the text adventure of interactive fiction was not very long. Zork being the product that started it all, of course, was also the best-selling. I mean, Hitchhiker's Guide and it are both here, but Zork 1 was definitely number one seller. Hitchhiker's Guide was number two seller. Because it was first, it was there at a time when that was a very popular genre, and because it's a text adventure and graphics don't obsolete, they just kept selling it. They put it on sale in 1980, and it's not like they discontinued it in 1982. Still being sold in 83, 84, 85, 86, 87. It may not have been selling as many copies in those later years, but it was still selling copies. So its sales just kept getting bigger and bigger in a way that game sales just don't in the modern era and even didn't 25 years ago. Rounding out the uh, 250,000s and the first episode in our look at this long list, we have a Zork 1 Infocom certified Platinum 22687. I need a break after that long list and all of those games and some productivity software. Absolutely. And for those of you worried because, you know, we just spent that time on a handful of 500,000 and 50,000 games, and, and you know because I've told you that they're going to be way more in the 100,000 category, we will speed it up as we go through the 100,000s and maybe even through the 50,000s. Otherwise, this would be a 10-part epic series. You know, obviously games that sell as many as these games do, they're particularly significant or have something particularly significant to say about what the industry was like at the time. We're going to see a lot of big hits, a lot of significant hits, a lot of genre-defining hits as we go along as well, but we'll spend a little less time on each one because we've kind of already set the scene in this big overview with the big hits. The celebration, however, of 100,000 downloads will continue in the next episode. I'll make sure to send Alex a uh, little electronic thing that I can hook up to a button to electrically prod him to continue. (laughs) May need it. May need it. We may need it. We need a cattle prod or something. Must go faster. Must go faster. (laughs) All right, kids. We'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 